Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, uh, get to learn about other cultures and what's going on in other parts of the world. Uh, today, I'm joined by two guests uh, from Delhi in India, uh, which is like a 12-hour time difference. I mean, we're just talking about how I woke up barely like an hour ago. I woke up like 7 a.m. and it's already like almost 8 p.m. Uh, there in Delhi. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're good. We're good. Uh, hello to all the listeners of uh, the Culture Class podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm Chirag and uh, uh, I have my friend Manisha with me. Hi. I hope everybody is doing uh, fine in these times. I hope you're staying indoors. Yeah, it's it's it's, diff- it's difficult, and that's something we're talking about, right? About I'm I'm recording from uh, Denver in the United States, and of course, uh, Denver has had a stay-at-home order for like two weeks now. Uh, the whole country doesn't have a stay-at-home order, but the the state ha- has a stay-at-home order. But you still see people like you know going out to get groceries. A lot of people go to the park, and you know while at the park, make sure you know you're six feet away from other people. Just you know walk around, so it's not as bad as you know. Um, France or maybe Spain or countries like that. But how is the lockdown in India? I think you guys have been on lockdown now for like, what, a week or something? Uh, yes, we've been on lockdown for a week now. And, so is it like uh, total lockdown? You guys don't get to go out at all? Or, you know, there are still like essential services that you guys can go out to participate in? Uh, no, we can go to buy the groceries and all the essential services. But uh, then if you can't step out for any, like outside your neighborhood, basically. Uh, you would need a curfew pass to travel around the city. Oh, you need a pass. Yes. Yeah. So the banks are open, the grocery stores are open, hospitals are obviously open, but you can't roam around, you can't go for walks and anything. So, yeah, the police is there. Wait, what? what's the pass called again? Uh, the curfew pass. The curfew pass. How do you procure yeah. a curfew pass do you have to have had it prior to the pandemic or you have to like apply for it uh, no uh, you, you you can apply for it in your nearest police station i think oh police That's station true. oh okay that that uh, obviously sound like me wouldn't not that i have a, a crime history but well <laughs> 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 that that's besides the point and you know it, it's uh it's amazing how you know times like this make you realize and acknowledge you know certain privileges that you have i mean someone like me even though you know i'm originally nigerian and you know i have family back home in nigeria does privilege of you know, having the ability to live and work in a country like the United States. And even though, you know, there are a lot of challenges with the health system and the way the virus is being handled here, you know, it's certainly worse like back home where, you know, the health amenities and facilities aren't just there. And even the privilege of even having a conversation with people halfway across the world, you know, having access to technology like this and having the opportunity to work in a job that permits me to work from home. So it doesn't involve any like physical activity. Uh, It just gives you a certain sense of of, of privilege, unlike some people who depend on their day-to-day bread from actually going out there and hustling and doing things uh, to get money to bring home uh, for their family. Right. No, in, like uh, India has also, uh, in the last week that we have been in lockdown, uh, so uh, the daily wage laborers who were uh, in all the uh, uh, cities like uh, De- De- Delhi and Mumbai, uh, they, had no pla- they, they had no place to live. And so they started traveling on foot to back to their villages. And, oh, wow. Uh, so they don't even have access to like transportation to like get back to their villages or things like that? Yes, no. We have actually shut down our uh, railways. We have shut down our buses. We have shut down everything. And we ordered a complete lockdown. The PM ordered a complete lockdown at 8. Wow. And it was, like, it was effective from 12. 
So you had four hours, everything was shut down. So people couldn't actually travel back to their places. Wow. So you had four hours to pack up and go. It wasn't like even a couple of days to to go back. And I can imagine how things are in Delhi. Like obviously India, you know, has one of the largest populations in the world, like the second largest actually. And Delhi is a pretty dense city. So I can imagine like the yeah. transportation infrastructure, like the, the railways and the buses and all that is pretty crowded on a normal day. So the government was just forced to, you know, do that to enforce social distancing. But these people walking all the way back to their villages, just that that can take days. Yeah, that, that, that can take days. And people have died because of it. Like I think 20 yeah. people uh, as, as per last count have died because of it. And uh, then they, when they reached the borders of Delhi, they were asked to turn back because uh, they were not allowed, like they were not allowed to cross the borders. So it it was a lot of back and forth, and and apart from the privilege of living in a home and having access to all the food you can have for the twenty one days, uh, even having water is a privilege for some. I mean, uh, there are a lot of localities where you don't get water. Uh, so how do you wash? Like people ask, how do you wash your hands? Uh, so so when you don't have water. Yes. Just, just, just imagine the things here in the U.S., the things we care about is actually toilet paper, which is a luxury <laughs> in, in some countries. Some people don't have water to, to, to wash their hands and, you know, running water is not uh, the reality in a lot of countries, including mine, you know, where I come from uh, back home in Nigeria. You know, we have the city centers like Lagos, Abuja, the capital, where a lot of people, but, you know, back in the, you know, upcountry and the rural areas, like it's not easy to educate people and tell them why they don't have to go to the farms, why they can't go to the market and things like that but uh, hopefully we see we will see you know this pass uh, hopefully the world gets to learn uh, something from this virus that you know unites people uh, more than usual but but yeah. yeah yeah I think it's important for people to actually realize how privileged they are like for for sitting in a home for actually having water for having soap for having a job like you can work from home, you can, your life is going on as usual, you just can't go out. So you, we, we should actually realize how privileged we have been. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, today we're, um, I actually, you know, reached out to uh, Chirag and Manisha, you know, uh, a mutual friend introduced us because uh, I was interested in, you know, a bill that was passed uh, last year, the Citizenship uh, Amendment Act, uh, you know, causing some opera in the country and we're going to get into that you know further into the episode but before we do that you know this is culture class podcast so obviously you know i'm primarily interested about things that have to do with cultures you know how things are done in other parts of the world so i want to get a sense of your background put your background so let me start with manisha like talk to me about yourself uh, i know you currently live in delhi right now but talk to me about growing up how was it like growing up uh, I, I'm not sure if you grew up in India, but how was it like growing up for you? How many siblings did you have? What were some of the experiences uh, that were unique to you uh, looking back at your life? Okay, so I like uh, De- Delhi is mostly a place where uh, most of the people have migrated from other uh, other states, but I was actually born and brought up in Delhi. My parents, both of them were born in Delhi. I have no siblings, but my grandmother, my grandparents were basically from Pakistan, The like. Today's Pakistan, uh, they lived in an undivided India. And when partition happened, being Hindus, they actually migrated from Pakistan, from Sindh to India. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So th- those were the days they actually traveled back. They, they were actually threatened to travel back, if I can say that. So, yeah. So th- those were the times my uh, grandparents lived. Ha- my grandparents have lived and then they migrated to the country. 
and since then we have been in delhi my mom had been to gujarat i i have mostly like grown up in delhi and educated myself in delhi did my undergrad here in economics and then enrolled for a course uh, like for development economics again for a graduate course in delhi itself so all my experiences have like i've grown up here i've seen how the place has changed i actually live on the like on the edge of delhi where on the have a completely developed world like i i live in uh, a cemented house and on the other side i can actually see the slums so th- those are the places like i i have seen the place grow but like you you can clearly see the inequalities in delhi if you stand at any one point you you're standing at one side of the road on one side you can see rich people on the other side you can see people living like very in very congested areas you can see in in a small place 10 people of 10 to 15 like a family of 10 people staying in the same place so we this is the kind of place delhi is so it will give you like very contrasting experiences yeah and that, and that's the case in a lot of the developing countries also um we we have a we have a saying here uh, gentrification here in the US where you know people come into you know these slums or ghettos and like push people out people out like build like high rise building and hotels and i remember watching the movie slum dog millionaire a couple of years ago and i saw glimpses of that is that something common uh, i mean growing up in delhi that you've seen also where uh you know um people of means come in and you know build these estates and you know large houses or neighborhoods and pretty much like push you know the original inhabitants of that you know further into the country or to other parts of the city this has been like an issue with most of the people that outside people come to the state like this was not a state they we like people in uh, people from a state called bihar are actually typically referred to as uh, biharis people from uh, you can actually say some people belong to maharashtra so delhi is a place where you can actually meet people from all the other states so Got there is a melting yeah. pot got it yeah got it no, also, you, you uh, mentioned delhi, delhi. Uh, oh sorry chira go ahead sure uh, yeah delhi also has developed uh, through its slums i mean uh, uh, you, you can uh, you can uh, see through the years uh, a lot of slums being converted into uh, actual uh, like registered homes for people so and uh, there has there has never been any urban planning in delhi it has always been an outgrowth uh, and so the government just went on with it and slums kept kept on developing and uh, converting into houses and that's how it went Got it, yeah, that's got it. actually the same thing for the building that I stay in right now. Like we, uh, the the registered building is just for first floor and uh, like uh, the ground floor and the first floor. But people went on to build their houses till fifth floor, and now the government can't do anything about it. So they're legalized now. Got it, got it. I also want to touch on uh, a word you mentioned, you know, uh, earlier when you were talking about your experience. I mean, your grandparents uh, moved here uh, from Pakistan. Uh, you guys are Hindu, but you, you talked about undivided India. Now, for the benefits of our listeners who are listening to from other parts of the world who might not uh, understand what that is, you want to give a brief explanation of what undivided India actually is. Okay, so uh, like, yeah, I'll give you. I'll actually give you a brief, a brief explanation about the same, but. given chirag is an expert in history i think he would like to elaborate on that so uh, basically uh, the uh, like when we got independence uh, india was a colony of britishers and when we got independence we got divided into two two states uh, like pakistan and india the pakistan part went to the muslims because uh, there, there was a there was an ask for a different state for muslims 
So Pakistan went to Muslims and most of the Muslims from the, uh, like the current day India went, migrated to Pakistan. Most, not all of them. Some chose to stay back. And then uh, most of the people, most of the Hindus from Pakistan migrated back to India. So that, that's the brief thing. Like It, it was uh, basically because we asked for a different state at the time of independence. We, uh, we asked for a different state for Muslims. Although, uh, like, Pakistan was made, uh, there, there was a very clear distinction on how Pakistan was formed and how India was formed. Pakistan was basically formed as a religious state, but India, however, uh, like, uh, India, however, was formed on the, like, on, uh, sec- uh, India was formed as a secular state. So we, we did not divide our, uh, we did not basically categorize on the basis of, uh, on the basis of, never uh, called ourselves a Hindu state. Yeah, but some people might argue that even though uh, officially, like India, it's a is a circular state, we still have uh, domination of uh, maybe uh, Hindus or Hindu philosophies uh, in the country, given that that's the most prevalent uh, religion. So, um, uh, unlike Pakistan, that's a religious state. Uh, some people might say, in some ways, uh, India are also like ex- exhibiting. Uh, traits of a religious state uh, as well. But uh, Chirag, do you want to like expantiate on the uh, term uh, uh, undivided states or anything you can add to what uh, Manisha just said? Uh, Sure. So uh, India as a concept actually never existed in history. Uh, We were never, uh, any uh, no ruler was able to unite uh, the region. Uh, That was was until the British came along and um, made a concept called India where uh, it uh, uh, covered... So before, uh, I'm sorry to cut you short. Before the British came, um, how did that area exist? Was it like different empires? It was empires? a collection of kingdoms, basically. Uh, so, okay. uh, yeah. Uh, under under It was under Hindu rulers uh, initially uh, and uh, uh, the largest, I think, it went under Ashoka, uh, which almost uh, covered the modern-day India but could not go to the south. Uh, then uh, the Mughals came along, the uh, Muslims from the uh, Afghanistan side, uh, the Mughals came along and uh, they built the biggest empire uh, India had in its history. Uh, but that also could not cover all of the regions that form current India. And, uh, that was, and, and then the uh, British come in 1600 and the, that's when all of the wars start. Uh, so... Uh, the demand for another uh, um, state for the Muslims uh, like began with Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan, uh, because he felt that like, in an uh, undivided India, uh, Muslims would be uh, relegated to, you know, oppressed, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so he demanded a Muslim state, but uh, uh, leaders in India uh, argued for a, a secular state despite, or never agreed to the two-nation theory, basically. Uh, which Jinnah proposed. Uh, so they went for a, a establishment of a secular uh, constitution, eventually. Got it, got it. And before we go further into the episode, you know, talk to me about your experience, like growing up. Were you also like uh, born in Delhi? Uh, did you come uh, from a s- single uh, child household like Manisha, or you had multiple siblings? Uh, what sports did you enjoy growing up? What were some of your uh, experiences uh, uh, growing up as a young kid over there? Uh, so, um, I have, uh, live, uh, like I was born in Ahmedabad, uh, which is a, a city in uh, Gujarat, 
Uh, and, is that uh, the tech capital of India, or that's that's uh, no, another? That's Bangalore. Oh, that's Bangalore. Bangalore. Oh, oh, I'm not that bad. It's uh, I, I was doing uh, some research uh, back then about incubators in, in India, and uh, I remember the city of Ahmedabad. Okay, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but my dad was in a, a transferable job, so I have uh, lived around India. Uh, I I went to Bombay and then Delhi, then Hyderabad, Chennai. I've moved around India a lot, so I've now lived in one place. Uh, but that got me to uh, see a lot of uh, places around India as well, and I experienced a lot of different cultures and how people live. It's very contrasting from north to south and west east. Uh, so that has been my experience, and uh, yeah, I have uh, a sister. As well, uh, she works for a media organization. Got it, got it. What sports, like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but cricket seems to be uh, the predominant sports uh, in India. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, growing up, you know, you we always got to experience like uh, going down and playing gully cricket and with your friends. That that has been true for all Indians, I think. Has, yeah. has the COVID situation also shut down the cricket league in India? Uh, is the cricket league currently in season or or no? Uh, no. So the uh, IPL, the Indian Premier League, was supposed to begin, uh, I think, uh, in mid March. It has been delayed, and uh, yeah, to a disappointment of a lot of people. But the gully cricket uh, thing has not stopped. You can see videos of people like violating the lockdown to play cricket and all these things. It, it happens like right next door. Uh, to people who live who live uh, at the third floor, go down and play cricket with each other. Got it, yeah. got it, got it. And, and it's really, it's really getting uh, popular. I think uh, uh, the is it the Indian Cricket League? Um, I think they just signed a deal with uh, ESPN or one of one of these uh, organizations uh, ju- just to show. And every like um, store I go to, like if I if I go to a Nepali store or an Indian store to, to get some food, like there's always almost like a cricket match <laughs> going on <laughs> in the background just, just to show the influence. Um, there's something I want to touch on before we also go into like the citizenship bill. Um, can we talk a little bit about like the caste system? I don't know, growing up in India, and we just talked about, you know, um, these uh some laborers you know who come into delhi to find work and you know uh are not necessarily um how do i put this like accepted basically there's almost like a caste system i, I guess uh, from what I understand, uh, depending on the family you come from or the tribe you come from, some of them identified by their last names, uh, 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 that kind of thing. And, you know, different uh, societal uh, hierarchies, depending on the caste you belong to, uh, even though that's something you don't have any control over. Growing up as a young kid in India, did, when did you guys get to realize that there was this system? Uh, when did you come to that, that realization that, oh, you know, there are people on, on this side and people on that side? Uh, is it something that, you know, you, you got to see in school? Uh, were you even able to go to school with people from different castes? Is it something that, you know, your parents sat you down and explained to you or just something you came into a realization of uh, as you just grew up and became maybe a teenager or something uh no so uh actually again that there comes a aspect of privilege here i mean uh, we have gone to the best of schools in the country uh so there you usually see a less of predominance of the culture but uh uh then the caste system is very prevalent throughout society still and it's a very uh horrible uh, uh system uh that comes from the vedic ages and like has always been prevalent in india where uh, uh people are divided uh in, into Brahmins, uh, four castes basically, Brahmins, Kshatriyas, uh, and uh, 
uh, Vaishyas and uh, the Shudra, Shudra coming the most bottom ones. Uh, and uh, historically, uh, these castes have determined the occupation of the people. The Brahmins were the peace, uh, priests, the Kshatriyas were the fighters, the Vaishyas were the businessmen, and the Shudra were the uh, people who did all the uh, jobs that were below everyone, like, uh, uh, you know, cleaning latrines and all these things. That's why they were uh, also, that they were associated with the practice of untouchability, where uh, people believe that if you uh, touch a Shudra, uh, you become impure. Uh, so, and even uh, you can't walk, they couldn't walk the same street as a person from a, from an upper caste. So it's a, it's a, it, and uh, this, this is not an old system. I mean, uh, in the remote places in India and even in cities, actually, for that matter, you can see it prevalent throughout uh, the country, even uh, the jobs in the country. Uh, you see only the people from upper caste in all the prominent positions. Uh, nobody, Nobody probably uh, practice it, practices it uh, on the face, but then uh, the system is such that people from the lower caste don't get the opportunities to climb up the ladder. Mm. Yeah, and uh, all, all the prominent uh, news persons, all prominent businessmen in the country are from the upper caste. Uh, for me personally, uh, I'm um, uh, my last name is Yadav, so uh, uh, I'm from the OBC category, which is the other backward castes, uh, where... Uh, uh, so uh, basically, uh, uh, after the uh, country became in independent, uh, the constitution gave people from lower caste reservations uh, mm. in uh, jobs and uh, schools and every place. So that created a, uh, like a sentiment of resentment as well in the upper castes. And uh, Yadav, which is my community, was given a reservation in the after the 1990s. Is is that a form of like reparations to make do? Yes, uh, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's almost like reparations, basically. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's interesting you say that because it's it's not like a, a a system peculiar to India as well. Like I'm Nigerian. I'm from southern Nigeria, from a place called Edo. Um, we don't have a caste system per se where I come from. But in eastern Nigeria, we have uh, something called Osu, which is like a different caste from the prevalent caste in eastern Nigeria. And if you come from an Osu family, like you won't be allowed to get married to uh, someone in another caste. So you have people who have been living in the U.S. for years and, you know, maybe they bear kids and their kids fall in love and, you know, they're about to get married and they discover, oh, the girl is also, or the boy is also, and they don't allow the marriage. Even, you know, years later, even though uh, our generation, you know, uh, some people just go ahead and don't really care about, you know, traditions and culture in that sense. But we do have, you know, bits and pieces of the caste system you know, working in other countries. And, you know, when we have a system like that, you know, especially when it's like institutionalized in the constitution or in the way of doing things, we tend to like neglect the talent that will come from a certain caste. Uh, you read about people like uh, uh, BK Amdekar and people like that who were like instrumental, like in drafting the Indian constitution, who were like one of the early statesmen of a country like India. Uh, he was from an untouchable caste. So just imagine how many more people from that caste system who couldn't contribute or, you know, uh, contribute their talents to the development of the country just because of that certain uh, uh, cultural or traditional system uh, uh, that we have. Uh, hopefully, you know, our generation uh, and our children's children, uh, you know, can go forward and, you know, hopefully um, uh, 
promote more unity uh, regarding things like that uh, in and around, you know, the caste system. But I just wanted to touch on that, you know, for the benefit kind of as a segue to what we're going to talk about next, uh, being the citizenship bill, just to give people a little more context of how uh, the society uh, operates over there in India. Uh, Manisha, I don't know if you have anything to add, add to that conversation. Yeah, actually, as uh, Chirag said, like we, we have been uh, very privileged to go to schools to live in a place where we haven't personally experienced any of that. I remember getting to know about the caste system actually from my English story. So mm-hmm. it, had, uh, it had a story about a brother and a sister. And uh, they, uh, Chirag, if you remember that story, they, they were untouchables. And yeah, uh, it was a story about a brother and sister. And the sister, uh, there's a younger sister. Who, who knows nothing about the caste system? Who knows nothing? Why you? Why uh, if you if you are giving food to an upper caste person, why it is held using a stick where you will be holding this side of the stick and the food will be on the other side of the stick. Got so it. the so the upper caste won't be. So I I was very like uh, when I read up the story, it hit me. It it really hit me. But then also I was under the given I have been brought up in Delhi, I was under the impression that this is something that used to exist. This is something that does not exist right now, like because I don't see it happening. I I don't know whether my friends belong to the upper caste or they are like SCSTs. But as we have grown up, as I have like started working, as I have read more, I realized it is very much prevalent, and it it has implications all over the economy. As Sharaf pointed out, uh, the the uh, the uh, the last cost, it's it's their job to clean. So that has repercussions that you can't even imagine. People don't have latrines in their uh, people don't have latrines in their own homes. And when uh, in 2014 we launched the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan, the major issue with people having uh, uh, having setting up a washroom in their home was that is something that we don't do. Like we are Brahmins, we don't have washrooms here. It's not our job to clean. It's mm. it's an, uh, like it's a dirty thing. We can't do that. So. Oh, wow. this, this prevalent uh, the caste system is in India and it does not only impact people personally it uh, like it uh, people lose out on opportunities as you pointed out B.R. Ambedkar was one person uh, like you they're, they're, you basically can't find any other person of this level so there, there are so many people who are from uh, lower caste who are losing out on a lot of opportunities because of the caste system yeah, and, and, and yeah, like you, like you pointed out, the institution of marriage also has been uh, divided along, along caste lines where you actually can't marry uh, outside your caste. Uh, so yeah, that yeah. that's true for India as well. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting, and it's interesting you talked about a story in school, right? Because even here in the US, like even till now, you you see you hear about amazing stories where. Um, states have different laws. So obviously the U.S. had uh, the Civil War years ago between the North and the South, uh, majorly over, over slavery. And you have these Southern states that have state legislature that compel publishers, so like Macmillan or any book publisher that produces school textbook, to modify the curriculum to fit the narrative of the Civil War to favor a particular side. So you have a mathematics textbook that's being used in the North or something, and they are given an example and or an English textbook, and the story is favoring the North, but down South, it highlights the heroes of the Southern you know, movement of the Civil War or something. And this is the same textbook produced by the same company. They just edited it and shipped some to the North and shipped some to the South. It just goes to show how, uh, you know, I guess, you know, 
the, the, what is the government? The government is a makeup of the people in that community, right? So you always have some of those prejudices, whether, whether it's religious, you know, political, ethnic, cultural, whatever it is, uh, uh, in facets of the government. So not, not a truly 100% unbiased government anywhere in the world, but that's just to say. But yeah, uh, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, uh, I mean, this is something that, that caused a, a lot of uproar, obviously. Uh, we even, so much so that, you know, people miles away, us in the West uh, that have, you know, obviously I have a couple of Indian friends, but, but it's not like I have any vested interest in the country, but I still got to hear about it just given the sheer scale of, you know, um, of, of, of waves being created. And um, I don't know, any of you can go into this, but just talking about what it is exactly, the Citizenship Amendment Bill of, uh, I think it was passed in December last year. Uh, what are the implications of it? Uh, uh, and just defining it, uh, basically, uh, uh, what it is. Uh, so the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, of uh, it was passed in uh, December 11, 2019, as you said. Mm -hmm. uh, it was basically a bill to uh, give citizenship to illegal immigrants in the country. Uh, but uh, it, has, it has a lot of history to it. Uh, so uh, would you like me to get to that first uh, to yeah. explain the context of the bill? Yeah, definitely. Uh, sure. uh, so uh, India's uh, citizenship... Uh, 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 Act uh, was first passed in 1955, uh, six years after the uh, constitution was uh, passed for the country, and uh, it allowed uh, uh, citizenship uh, right before the constitution was passed. Uh, whoever was in India was a citizen, or you could uh, be a citizen by birth, by descent, by registration, or by naturalization, like in any country. Uh, but then, uh, some uh, due to some events uh, around 1986, uh, the uh, there was a, an amendment to the Act where uh, uh, the citizenship by birth was uh, removed and uh, uh, you, at, at least one of your parents had to be a citizen of India for you to be a citizen of a country. Uh, and uh, then there was another amendment to the act uh, in 2004, which said uh, that uh, if both parents are Indian citizens, only then you can be a, a citizen of the country, or if uh, one of the parents is an Indian citizen or the other is not an illegal immigrant. Uh, now, this aspect of illegal immigrant uh, was never defined uh, in the citizenship uh, acts. Uh, so India, until now, until December, did not have a provision of, on how to give citizenship to uh, illegal immigrants into the country. Mm. And uh, that is where uh, the CAA comes in. Uh, and like probably I think uh, Manisha can elaborate more on that. So, uh, as Shura pointed out, India is among the few countries that actually don't have a policy regarding illegal immigrants. It provides long-term visas to refugees on a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, it's not even a signatory to 1951 UN Refugee Convention or to uh, the 1967 Protocol. So, we, we basically don't even have a national refugee protection framework. So, that was the case until now. Uh, an exception to this thing, uh, to like providing visas on a case-by-case -case basis, it was uh, made in 2015 for the minority communities from uh, three countries, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, who were seeking shelter in India. So what CAA is basically doing is, it is making an amendment in the Citizenship Amendment Act of 1955. To define. Yeah, yeah we, are, we are providing six religious minorities, uh, uh, minority migrants, uh, that is uh, Hindus, Christians, Buddhists, Jain, Sikhs, and Parsis who have entered India illegally, and we are, we are providing them uh, like uh, eligibility to apply for an Indian citizenship if they have stayed in the country 
for over five years. So, but the the major problem, the major criticism that the act has uh, like uh, faced is that it is targeting Muslims specifically mm. because we are, we are granting citizenship on the basis of uh, religion. religion. So it is basic principles of our secularism. It is violating liberalism. It is violating equality. It is violating justice. So, and many people have actually argued that it is violative of the Article Fourteen of the Constitution, which guarantees everybody the right to equality. So if you're basically saying you're granting citizenship to everybody but Muslims, that has been the major problem for most of the people. Yeah, I mean, and it's a very interesting act because rarely do you have uh, specifics in the constitution, right? So most constitutions in most countries just, you know, when they want to talk about things like religion or, you know, just say, oh, you know, freedom to practice religion, they make it vague because you never know, like a religion might, might start today. And, you know, if you define a religion yeah. 10 years ago, what happens to the religion that starts today? So most lawyers, when they are uh, drafting constitutional amendments, I think they try to make it a little vague so, you know, the courts can then interpret it if, if they feel someone is violating uh, the constitution. But they specifically listed out six specific religions and excluding uh, Muslims. And obviously, um, I think the, the major argument of the government is saying that, hey, you know, in these countries where we're providing... Uh, uh, refuge for these illegal immigrants, in quotes, that those countries are predominantly Muslim. And if you're Muslim there, you have no need of coming to India to seek for citizenship because you're not facing any sort of persecution, being the predominant religion in that particular country. But people have come up with arguments on, on cases where uh, even members of the Muslim community are being persecuted uh, in those countries and why... Uh, the Indian government should limit it to just this Sikh religion and excluding that country. That it's a kind of a ploy to get rid of the Muslims who are currently in India and things like this. And it's, it's all this back and forth. My first question is, how do you even know? And I don't know if India has a system of this. I know, you know, you have a national registry. How do you even know someone is Muslim? How do you know someone is part of a certain religion? If I don't tell you um, I'm Hindu or I'm Christian or I'm Muslim, does the government have any record of my religion? Uh, so far, I don't think there's a provision. Uh, it's quite voluntary. Yeah. Uh, so we even I, have a national registry, right? For the entire country. Uh, yeah, I think the last exercise was done in 1950, uh, 1951, uh, or uh, I'm forgetting the year. Uh, yeah, so I don't think there's a register for citizens. And, uh, uh, because like, uh, religion has always been a voluntary thing. Even in the constitution, uh, you can practice any religion you want or not practice any religion if you want. So I don't think there is a record of people uh, with uh, uh, like associated religion to them. Got it. So so if I'm coming into the country and I'm an immigrant and let's say I'm, I'm Muslim and I'm facing uh, persecution, uh, what stops me from saying that, hey, you know, I'm actually Christian and I, I want to become an Indian citizen? Is there any way the government can investigate to know uh, if I'm lying or not? Or, you know, maybe they are just depending on the fact that, you know, a Muslim will just hold true to their religion and not denounce their religion. And in that sense, I wouldn't want to... Uh, uh, betray their religion by applying to a system that that's deliberately trying to exclude them from the system. Uh, yeah, no, I uh, uh, I think a, a Muslim could lie if they want to, but the uh, whole argument is like, why should it? Uh, that that is the entire argument of the uh, people here. 
and uh, uh, like you said like uh, there are a lot of uh, minorities uh, minority muslims who are oppressed in uh, these countries as well like uh, shias in pakistan and hazaras in uh, afghanistan even uh, uh, rohingyas in uh, myanmar for the matter myanmar. which yeah the ca does not cover so basically the ca could have said uh, religious minor, uh, pro- prosecuted minorities from neighboring countries mm. but it went on to specify like you said all the six religions and three countries specifically and leaving out other neighbors like nepal and bhutan and sri lanka and myanmar uh, where uh, you know tamils in sri lanka are uh, oppressed as well uh, it did not cover that uh, and uh so yeah uh, there was no specific need to mention um, uh, countries or uh, religion for that matter and that's what the entire argument is yeah although the entire from uh, like the argument from the bjp side is that uh, like uh, people hindus basically don't have a state where they can fall back on if they're facing any discrimination in any country mm. so to be given those uh, like they need to have that security that you you have a particular state which you can fall back in case of emergencies you you can always come back to india i think that that yeah that that's what the government is trying to do here but if the country was uh, created as a secular state why do people need to fall back on the basis of religion because if if we say you know india was created uh you know as a secular state you know like like you said in the beginning of the podcast uh why do we then need to give refuge to people of a certain religious category like hindus for instance um uh has the government been able to successfully uh explain that particular stance or no i think this sentiment has always been there like even when uh, like um, at the debates at the constitutional debates were going on this sentiment was there the the, uh, the there were people arguing that uh, we should be creating uh, like uh, that people those people that have gone back to pakistan Mm-hmm. like that have at this moment they have chosen to go to pakistan and not india why should they be given an opportunity to come back to the country they they were basically not loyal to the country and the, these debates have always been going on uh, there has been a sentiment with most of the people who feel that uh, you need a hindu state as well so there are people who you will meet who will be claiming that we need a hindu state as well because nowhere in the world we have a hindu nation so mm-hmm. the sentiment has been there in a lot of people but uh, i think at the time when we were creating the country uh, the sentiment uh, of the people towards a secular state was dominant and right now i think it's kind of the opposite situation what do you think? yeah you know uh, uh, the ca itself that's not a bad act i mean you need a, you need an act for illegal immigrants but then it should not be discriminatory that is that, that, that is the point and and the second point is with uh, like you mentioned the national register of citizens uh the main uh, the uh, other argument has been uh, that uh when like the bjp has been saying the home minister has been saying that after the ca uh, we'll bring in a national register which will identify uh, you know how many people are there in the country and what the religion is uh and now the argument is that uh, people who uh, are uh, you know identified as uh, illegal uh, immigrants in the nrc which the ultimate goal is now if they if they are of the six uh, religious uh, categories they'll be automatically given citizenship under the ca but the muslims will be left in a limbo and uh, mm. a lot of a lot of legal uh, people citizens living in the country are don't muslims. have documents oh like, they don't have documents yeah yeah exactly i mean even even our parents for that matter i mean we have been living here even before independence uh, uh, in this country but uh, there was not a system of giving them birth certificates during their birth 
Mm. So, and then there are the poor who lose their documents and they would be the worst affected out of this uh, whole exercise. Exercise. I mean, I, I can relate to that. I mean, even my father, my father obviously grew up in the village uh, in the in the in the 60s and the 50s in Nigeria. Nigeria is a country that got independence in 1960. I mean, where he, when he was born, obviously he was born in the village. He wasn't born in a hospital, so they had no records of. I'm, I'm sure my dad's laughing if he's listening to this. But they had no <laughs> they had no records of you know birth records or hospital records or anything. So he eventually grew up and wanted to join the Nigerian military. Or I think even before he joined the Nigerian military, when he wanted to get into secondary school, he had to choose a date of birth. And he didn't know when he was born. You know, he went to ask his illiterate mother and his mother said, oh, you were born when the moon came over on this festival, you know, <laughs> something. And it was like, that's not a date. Like I was born during this festival. When is that date? And he was forced to choose the Nigerian Independence Day as his birthday. So now every year we celebrate the Nigerian independence as my dad's birthday, even though he might have been born a couple of months before, a couple of months after, but he just chose to do that and it'd be easier. And I relate to what you're saying that obviously there are people who have lived in India for several years, but might not necessarily have birth documents or like ID records or anything like that. And obviously this is like skewed to the lower socioeconomic class, as I can imagine. And not only is this bill or the NRC or anything like that affecting people coming into the country, but also affecting people who have lived there for many years, who consider themselves Indians, who have contributed to the economy in one way, but unfortunately don't have some form of proof to say that they are Indian besides saying they've lived in India for X number of years. Right. And, and, you know, this um, entire thing would not have uh, blown up so much because uh, the, the CA was passed and there were some protests and uh, people were not unhappy with it. And mm. there are a lot of supporters, I tell you, I, I'll tell you that. I mean, uh, even within the community, so uh, people people support that a lot. Uh, the, these protests were mainly centered uh, uh, around Muslim colleges and not mainstream, but then the uh, Delhi police uh, uh, mainly entered a campus uh, in a college here called uh, Jami Media, and uh, they beat up, a, uh, beat up students and uh, overnight, and uh, you know, like destroyed the library, and that incited more, that brought in more anger, and that's how that you know rolled up into a to nationwide protest against the bill. It, 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 it would not have become that big an issue had the state handled it, handled it in a better manner. Got it. And and it's always funny how, you know, most of these movements and resistance and protests uh, start from colleges uh, uh, right. around the world. Uh, let, let's take a, bit, a step back and talk about, you know, the structure of government. Also, you know, to provide some kind of context about this. Uh, the structure of government in India, obviously India is like the largest democracy in the world, but... Uh, can you guys, uh, maybe Manisha, you want to chip into this? Can you guys want to kind of like briefly define how the structure of government is? Uh, is it a? It's not obviously not a monarchy, but um, you guys have like a president. You also have a prime minister. How is the power divided among states or regions? Is it centralized in one, or you know each state has the power to enact their own laws? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Do you have like a bicameral legislature where you have a house that's separate from uh, like a Senate kind of thing? Just to give us some more context on how uh, this bill, you know, came about. Okay, so we, we are basically a constitution, uh, we are a democracy. In mm -hmm. India is basically a democracy. 
So we uh, like we have a president and a prime minister, as you pointed out. But most of our powers, in fact, almost uh, every power is rested with the prime minister. So the president is there, but most of the powers, how to how to run the economy, how to run the state, how to take decisions, and every everything is rested with the prime minister and not with the president. And uh, so ap apart from apart from a central government, we have uh, the country is divided into states and union territories. I think. Uh, it's 36 now, right? Uh, 37. So we have, 37. 37. We have 37 uh, states and union territories right now. So each state or each region, if you would call it, each region has its own uh, government as well. And uh, we are overseen by a central government as well. But the states, uh, there are, there are uh, subjects uh, listed down. So some subjects like healthcare, like education would come under the state government. And there are some subjects listed down that would come under the central government. But the states, uh, here in India don't have as much power to form the laws and to do everything right uh, like they have in US. So compared to compared to America, I think we, we uh, our states have a lot less power in most of the, uh, have a lot less power, a lot less say in making, uh, in making rules about most of the things that matter for what, what, about, what about the flow of money? Like uh, those subjects are under the control of the state. Uh, are they fully funded by the state or they still receive uh, funding from the federal government? No, they, they, do, they do actually receive some funding from the federal government as well. Like central government has, it's a very nice interplay. So like we, we have a, a lot of papers and a lot of academic work uh, talking about how if you have a, a particular government in the center, so the flow of funds to that particular state will go where you have uh, the same government in the state as well. So if you have BJP in power in the center, and if you have BJP in power in a particular state, so mm. that's definitely be favored. Same goes with Congress. So yeah, that, that favoring goes on. Okay, okay. I think I think that's a global phenomenon. Uh, certainly where I come from, that's almost yeah. the same system you have. And, you know, talking about the BJP, uh, I, I must be able to pronounce this correctly. Bharatiya Janata Party is that it? Did yeah. I get that correctly? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I tried at least. I mean, which is like the, the Indian People's Party, which is, I guess, the ruling party uh, currently uh, in India. I mean, some people there are some conspiracy theories who say that oh, you know, the Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi is from the BJP, and you know, uh, they tend to push more Hindu. Uh, focused or, you know, they, they are sentimental towards Hindu policies and the advancement of the Hindu religion. So even though it's not officially called like the Hindu party or anything, like they seek to advance uh, the agenda of the Hindu. So this CAA is just one extra layer on how to advance, you know, the, the Hindu movement. And of course, you know, this might be considered um, a conspiracy by some, might be considered like Facts by others, but that's neither you know here nor there. Some people you know look back at the prime minister's uh, history when it was uh, the was it the governor of Gujarat the or the chief minister or the chief minister? What's the difference between the chief minister and the governor? Is it the same thing? Uh, no. So we also have governor, but it's like the prime minister and the president uh, in the states. The chief uh, minister has most, and the governor mostly has the signing authority on all. The 
Got it. Got it. So, yeah, people talk about, you know, when uh, Mr. Modi was like chief minister in, in Gujarat and, you know, we had all this tension and protests. And obviously there, were, there was a scandal that happened way back in 2001, 2002, where, you know, a lot of there was like ethnic tension and religious tension. Uh, a lot of Muslims died and people are pointed out to, you know, some speeches he made where it seemed to almost be like he was anti a certain religion. And this is just like rearing his face now in this current bill. So I guess my, my question is, how many people who are part of the BJP, which is the current ruling party, are against this bill? Do we have people coming out publicly who are embedded in the system, who are part of the BJP, maybe even part of government, who are Indians, who have a vested stake, who are coming out and speaking that, you know what, even though this is meant to favor me, I recognize how discriminatory this bill is and this shouldn't happen. Is that a popular stance in India or we just have pockets of, uh, of groups or people saying that here and there? Uh, no, in the BJP itself, uh, there is like wholesome support for the CAA because it has it has been in their agenda for quite a while. And uh, when they uh, ran for general elections in 2019, they had specified they would bring the CAA. And uh, in fact, the CAA has like its origins before 2019. Uh, it was uh, passed at a, as a notice uh, from the Ministry of Home Affairs in 2015 itself, uh, mm. soon after they came to power. And they just made into into a law in 2019. So it has been their agenda for quite a while, and people are aware of it. Uh, uh, and there is quite a bit of support for that bill as well. It's only it's only like pockets of people who, majorly, uh, you know, the students led the movement, and it's the young people who, you know, uh, so th there has become like a people like like in the U.S. like liberals have become the hated community in the country. And that is the community basically which is arguing against the bill, and which is which is a small minority. I mean, for that matter, BJP won with quite a popular support. Uh, there is no denying that. So people people love what they do, and yeah. And just about our families, like most of the people in our families are also supportive of the BJP. They're also supportive of what is happening because people. Uh, if I if I talk to my grandmother especially. I can never explain it to her that uh, the bill is discriminatory. Her, her stance is very clear and very simple that if I had to leave my place, if I had to leave where I used to live, where I spent my childhood, I was thrown out of that place and I had to move back to Delhi. Mm. So uh, if, if I move back to Delhi, why are they not moving to Pakistan? Because uh, like Muslims demanded a state Pakistan. So if I left my place so that Muslims could have their place, mm. so why do I not have a Hindu state right now? So that sentiment that there are some people who actually experience the partition and you can never uh, like uh, no, no amount of arguments, no logic can actually explain it to them that we were not formed on the same lines. Yeah. I mean, it's. I guess it's easier if you're in the first generation, right? Like if you were born in that time where you actually had to pick up your bags and move to a different country, it might be easier to explain. But if you have children who grew up knowing a certain lifestyle or you know you have for let me use new york for example like you have people from all over the world so you have the asian community in new york for instance you know, these people grew up in brooklyn they grew up in you know all the five boroughs and they are embedded in i don't know hip-hop for example they identify with that culture more than even somewhat so 
to the extent that they identify with their Asian culture. So this is all they know. So when they go back to Asia, they are treated as foreigners because they speak American, they dress American, everything they do is American, so they are seen as not true Asians and being American. So if you are telling, you know, someone who is two, three generations removed, who has lived in India all his life, that, oh, why can't you just go back that he didn't start it? It was my grandfather or great-grandfather who now left to come here and now saying that I should live, you know, I might have built a business here, I might have, you know, you know, achieve some level of wealth or, or anything here and to go to a country that I'm not even familiar with, maybe I've never even been to before, where do I start? If I go to that country, what state do I claim? What can I contest in elections in that country? You know, what can I do in that country uh, compared to what I can do here, you know, given that this is what I've known my whole life. But there's also like another aspect of, I like to call all these conspiracies because me, you know, me looking outside, you know, I can't say what is fact. I can't say what is fiction, I guess. You know, people who are really experiences can speak better to this. But there are also people who seem to be supporting the this particular uh, anti or demonstrations against the bill because they're against immigration in a sense. So it's a case of like culture versus religion. So they don't want this bill to stand, not because it's discriminatory, but because they don't want like other people from other cultures to easily integrate into theirs. And I guess this is particular in some parts of the country that are, you know, bordering on maybe some of those countries. Do we ha also have cases like that? Can you guys, you know, talk Talk about that a little bit, about people who are like kind of almost like the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Like they don't really care about the whole discrimination and, you know, culture and Muslim thing. They just don't want to see people bringing, you know, different cultural influences, infiltrating their environments and, you know, over different generations gets into be the dominant culture in that, you know, particular state or region or whatever. So, yeah, sorry. Uh, no, so uh, there, uh, the whole uh, NRC thing, uh, which I talked about, uh, mm. began in this state called Assam, mm. uh, which, is, uh, which is in eastern part of India. And uh, it has its uh, uh, borders with Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, illegal migration takes place uh, of uh, Hindus uh, in uh, uh, Bangladesh to uh, Assam, uh, where they work and they go back to Bangladesh. Uh, and uh, Muslims as well, Hindus and Muslims both. Uh, so uh, Assam, the protests in Assam for CAA are different from the entire country is because they don't want Hindus or Muslims both to be given citizenship because they fear that uh, they'll come over and take their Assamese culture away. Mm. Uh, uh, they, uh, and they also have an argument that a neighboring state uh, to them uh, called Tripura has had this experience where uh, people from Bangladesh have come over and totally uh, taken over uh, the culture of the uh, state uh, and the tribal community there is now a minority. So a, a, a lot of uh, uh, protests for the CA in some states is because of the uh, thing you're talking about. Uh, people don't want uh, people from other cultures to come in and take over their, uh, yeah. That, that's particularly the case with the, the northeastern part of the country. Like mm. you you uh, see that case happening in the northern part of India because that's a, that's a Hindu majority kind of area, Hindu, Sikhs and everybody. But then in the northeastern part of the country, where you have Assam, Tripura, Sikkim, so at, uh, there people are protesting along these lines. They're actually talking about how uh, they will be a minority in their own state. If, if you allow uh, Hindu immigrants from other states, they, they will uh, their status will be reduced as a minority in their own particular state. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very, you know, complex problem. Um, and, you know, if you if you attack one side of the problem, you know, it tends to get worse uh, on the other side. And correct me if I'm wrong, like India seems to be predominantly conservative uh, in the sense that maybe I guess the predominant party is more conservative than liberal and even like generally. Uh, I mean, I was amazed at, at the reception like Trump received when he visited India a, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I, I watched this video on, on YouTube of, you know, someone actually who made like a shrine of Trump like outside his house and actually like kind of like saying a few prayers like every day. I was like, wow, that this is... Uh, this is like taking it up a, a notch. Is, are there any, uh, did you feel like the, the whole country is predominantly conservative? Uh, are there any other philosophies like uh, liber liberals or any other uh, uh, political philosophies uh, in the country of uh, a billion people? No, so I would like to say that uh, India, uh, like if you imagine uh, the sentiment of the people right now, uh, where they are taking a quite a liberal stance, uh, if I can say that, uh, India has had very liberal origins in the like after the after the partition. Like uh, you can get the sentiment from like uh, what Manisha's grandmother probably thinks, but then imagine at the time when they're making the constitution uh, of the country. Uh, soon after we got independence in 1947, uh, there was a period of three years uh, where they made the constitution. So, uh, and they just had the history of partition. And uh, like they are debating on trying to make the country secular. And uh, that is a very difficult, difficult stance to take at the time. You, you can see your own uh, community being uh, uh, tortured in the other country. And then you argue in the uh, constitution uh, uh, debates that you want to make the country secular. Uh, but our leaders were such that uh, they um, like forged, like they, they stood their ground and they uh, tried to make uh, a secular constitution. Uh, so that is something uh, I can't even imagine right now when there was no, not even a conception of India and there was a fear that India might break apart after a few years. At that time, to take such a liberal stance and then to also give voting rights to everyone in the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. even US went on to give their voting rights to women for very late in the... And India started off with giving their voting rights to everybody in the country. That That is something uh, amazing and uh, no country had done it before. Uh, so yeah, we have very liberal origins, but then we also have, the community society also has a certain kind of uh, respect or they are in awe of authoritarian figures. Uh, like uh, at first president, Jawaharlal Nehru, he was a, uh, like, his liberal credentials can't be questioned. Uh, despite what anyone says, and he uh, he and Gandhi were the ones who, apart from uh, all, all the like leaders of the time, uh, who argued for a secular country. But then uh, his own daughter uh, Indira Gandhi uh, turned out to be absolutely authoritarian, and uh, she had immense support. I mean, she came to power democratically. She imposed an emergency on the country where for two and a half years nobody had any rights, and uh she lost power after that for some like for some reason she held elections and she lost power uh, to a very new party uh which was a uh, opposition to the uh, to Indira Gandhi's rule but after three years people bought her back again with absolute majority so wow. India has yeah so India had India just loves authoritarian figures and that was uh, same with Modi I mean his uh, support for him is like unprecedented and people agree with what he does uh, because the view here is like if you don't force people to do it, they won't do it. So yeah. you need a, and I think that somehow stems from uh, the family values. Also, we have been uh, brought up with 
uh, uh, the country, the uh, your family does not allow you to question your elders. I mean, even if you come in with logic to your parents, uh, you are told that respect your elders and don't say anything. So uh, that is somehow inbuilt into society and the political system as well. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, just as a comic relief to to talk less about the serious stuff. Uh, a, a lot of, you know, we have more and more uh, Nigerian. This is just, you know, all jokes and fun and games. More and more Nigerians are being open to the possibilities of getting married to people outside the country. And uh, a, a lot, some Nigerians are starting to look at like young ladies from India in the sense that, and this is typical Nigerian, by the way, that, hey, you know, if I get married, unlike Nigeria, where the guy has to pay the dowry, that the lady has to pay the dowry in India. So I much rather get to <laughs> marry to <laughs> like an Indian lady. Like it's a very intriguing concept for us because getting married in Nigeria, like a typical, depending on what part of the country you come from, but a typical Nigerian where they like, you buy all these gifts for the in-laws and you buy gifts for people in the communities and you give a token payment. It's supposed to be a token payment for uh, your wife that you're getting married to, but some families inflate that sum and it's non-refundable, basically. So it's getting more and more expensive to get married. So a lot of Nigerian guys, that's the excuse. Like, you know, I'd love to get married to you, but you know, your father, where you're from, you know, so, you know. <laughs> a lot of Nigerian guys used to get, get out of that situation, but that's neither here nor there. That's just uh, providing some comic relief uh, for the serious discussions we're having so far. But uh, touching back on your personal lives, uh, let's talk about some of your interactions or some of your first interactions uh, with other cultures can you you guys remember the first time you like left delhi to go to other parts of the country talk to me about some of your travel experiences that could be within india or outside india maybe getting to experience things you haven't experienced like for the first time like i remember the first time i came to the u.s and i was driving and the stop signs and you know the traffic lights were just different from nigeria you know so unlike nigeria where green means go and once it's green you go like in the u.s when it's green you still have to yield for people driving and turning from the left and something like that so that was like a little different from you. Have you guys had any of those experiences like traveling within India or outside India? Chirag, would you like to start given you have like lived in the entire country? <laughs> uh, no, so yeah, uh, I, I, I like I, I never realized I was interacting with people from different communities because it's so prevalent in India that uh, you never make the distinction that uh, like he's from that religion and I'm from this religion. Uh, so uh, my experiences have been like uh, from my uh, my childhood. Uh, I've played with uh, Muslim friends, Hindu friends, Christian friends, and uh, I never got to realize until uh, you know I grew really good, got into my teenage and realized that uh, there is a divide in the country and uh, and this these divides kind of flare up uh, when uh, you know certain political groups come up because. It's it's never like uh, it's never inbuilt in your society and like your neighbors are Muslims and you never realize it until it becomes a political issue. Uh, so yeah, like it's a natural part of life in India uh, interacting with different religions. Exactly. Yeah. Like we we live in a neighborhood. Uh, like I have uh, I belong to Sindhi community. Like we uh, when we migrated, we were from the Sindh part of Pakistan. So yeah, I belong to the Sindhi community. I have. In my own lane, I have four Sindhi people living. I have some uh, other communities, some Punjabi people living. I have some uh, Muslims living in my own lane. So you you celebrate all the festivals. You're celebrating Diwali together. You have If you're growing up together, you, you're definitely celebrating uh, Hindu festivals. You're celebrating Muslim festivals together. 
you you actually experience going to the church uh, you actually experience uh, like uh, their festivals you experience christmas so growing up these were the things that we experienced i i never actually experienced that we we are creating like my mom i i never recall my mom stopping me from going to a muslim friend's house i never recall her saying that that that's not our festival that's a christian festival that you're going to celebrate so th- those were the things that i till a very later uh, stage in my life like uh, till i think i was 18 till I, i think i was out of school i i actually never thought that these are the things that actually exist in the country right now when when you're reading about it when, whenever i was reading about it i was always of the opinion okay these things happen these things happen in remote part of the country right now but we live in city and most of the country is starting to like uh, get developed now so the, these are the things of the past mostly and we we will get past this but uh, when when now that we are talking to a lot of different people we see that this is not only prevalent in cities but this is prevalent in younger generation as well there are a lot of young people who relate with the sentiment uh, that's that has not uh, like been obvious to us they relate with the sentiment that uh, like th- those are different communities uh, those are people who belong to different castes there are people who will actually ask you which caste you belong to and these are young people so everybody has definitely not grown up with the same sentiment and these things have an implication for our society for our uh, like the, for the future of our society i think and as uh, travel experiences i remember this one the particular travel experience uh, uh, when we uh, chirag and i traveled to nepal for suvikshas wedding okay so yeah so we we were there for the wedding and uh, it was basically such a nice experience because being in delhi it's like people are not that uh, like you're, you're very nice to your community you're very nice to the people who you know by community i mean neighborhood for the people you know yeah. but I- never seen people helping uh, like uh, out each other i've never seen people helping out uh, people on the roads that that's a rare kind of like new york right <laughs> <laughs> so when we went to nepal there were like uh, we we have gone back in time there were there were people uh, like trying to help you out if you ask somebody they'll they'll give you more than required knowledge they'll ask you like yeah we can we can actually help, take you there it's just like 2 minutes away so the the kind of uh, behavioral change that we experienced in nepal that that was something that i had never experienced in delhi so if you, if you are actually asking for help from someone it it won't be uh, like easy in delhi and that that was like people have grown up with those values in nepal and we have probably not been able to achieve that that, that was so, a complete thing for me also like that that's different for different cities uh, surprisingly yeah. i don't know people should study that probably like why behavior changes according to region uh, like in delhi nobody will help you out if you uh, uh, like on the road and uh, you know meet with an accident or you are yeah. like need someone for help delhi uh, you won't find help uh, but you go to bombay and like people are go just out of the way to help you uh, i remember when I, when i was in delhi uh, when i was in mumbai uh, and uh, we i was small at the time and my family was stuck in rains a random stranger turns up in his car and like drops us home Uh, so like it changes kilometer by kilometer the behavior so uh, you see disparities uh, even behavior in food in everything in every aspect of life and uh, that's that's india basically yeah i can definitely relate to that like even in lagos which is like the commercial capital in nigeria like southern nigeria where the most popular state like we used to have this saying many years ago where people used to wear watches now everybody checks their time on the phones like if you ask for the time in lagos now no one tells you oh it's 2 p.m or 3 p.m they just show you the watch 
Like no one wants to talk to anyone. Like everyone has this hustle, grind, focus mentality. Hey, don't talk to me if you're not bringing me any money. I don't want to, I don't care who you are, you know, that kind of thing. So obviously it's not like that in other parts. So even within the same country, it's possible to have uh, you know, dynamic cultures. And it was interesting, Manisha mentioned Diwali. Uh, I was looking forward to participating in Diwali a year ago or so, but unfortunately I wasn't able to make it. This year, like, I kind of, like, made a commitment to attend a holiday festival here in Denver, but unfortunately was cancelled because of the coronavirus. But just get, getting to, to realize, you know, some of all this festival dashing in Nepal, uh, I was able to, you know, participate in that. I go to a couple of, you know, South Asian stores from time to time because, you know, uh, besides the uh, Nigerian cuisine, South Asian cuisine is, is one of the spiciest, which is something I'm used to uh, uh, over here. But yeah, it's been pretty interesting you know talking to you guys uh, uh obviously you know this wasn't like a structure this isn't like cnn or something this wasn't like a structured interviews it's just me you know having a couple of questions being intrigued at the situation going on in india you know obviously uh, I, I I don't know much about it, and this is not you know to in any way castigate the government or you know the society. And I apologize if I did that unknowingly, uh, you know, during the episode. But in kind of like wrapping up, uh, what do you guys think can be done to ease the tensions that are rising uh, based off on CAA, and whether that can be some kind of amendment to the CAA or uh, you know the way it's implemented or just, you know, some kind of education or cultural awareness that can be done. I mean, if you had that power, what are some of the suggestions you think you can give to the government to kind of like ease off other situations? Uh, you know, to begin with, actually, the Supreme Court will take up the legality of the bill. I mean, uh, there can be arguments made that the bill itself is uh, unconstitutional because it violates the equality, uh, Article 14, uh, and uh, several other uh, aspects of the Constitution. So, but the Supreme Court is up for that. Uh, they'll take up the uh, uh, the legality of the bill. Uh, but uh, to begin with, the government could probably, uh, you know, clarify to the people. I mean, it, it has done so, but uh, through not very clear means on how they will combine this with NRC when it comes along and mm. how... They should they should make sure that people who are have been living in India, irrespective of caste, creed, and religion, they uh, they feel safe and they they don't feel threatened every day that uh, they might be they might have to prove uh, they are the citizens of the country or not. And the onus I think should not lie on the citizens. Uh, this is a state uh, given uh, the constitution is a state given concept, and the onus should not be on the citizen to prove that we are the citizens of the country. The onus should be on the state to say that you are an illegal uh, immigrant, uh, so uh, this is what you should do. Uh, so uh, first, uh, the state can bring in more clarity. And uh, second, uh, uh, you know, the, the bill can be amended to say that uh, uh, persecuted minorities from all neighboring countries of India uh, would be given citizenship. Uh, uh, why, why create that uh, religious uh, uh, divide? Uh, so I think those are the two things that the... Uh, like government can do. I think I would like to add to the clarity part of it. Like a lot of uh, a lot of protests, I think actually started because uh, not because people were uh, trying to go, uh, trying to just say that the bill is discriminatory against Muslims, but a lot of it uh, actually started because when people combine CA with NRC, 
they thought an NRC would be conducted like it had been conducted in the state of Assam. So you you have you the government gave no clarity about uh, what kind of documents will uh, you be required to submit for an NRC process. And uh, the rules have been very stringent in Assam. Although the government later went on to say that Assam is a special case and there were different reasons for conducting an NRC there, and uh, the NRC won't be similar. Like it won't be a similar exercise for the rest of the country. But I think that particular rumor, where you don't know what documents you'll have to submit, that actually created a lot of issue with, uh, like, uh, with the people, and they actually started thinking that the uh, the people who have uh, been living in the country for so many years will actually be questioned. So I think for that matter, you that that rumor had not been there had the government clarified. So I think that that's something that they should focus on right now. Like that, that's something that they should do. Oh, well, yeah. Thank you for, you know, sharing your opinions, uh, Manisha and Chiraga. Before, you know, we wrap up the podcast in about five minutes or so, um, I, I like to play something called Endgame. So obviously the objective of this podcast is to interact with people from different cultures. We just focus on the CAA because, you know, that's one topic that's a little bit hot right now uh, in the in the country of India. But uh, primarily this podcast is just to interact with people from different culture. We have a casual conversation. People get into hear things they haven't heard about before. Some people might Google what Diwali is after this, you know, someone listening to this from Kenya or Australia might say, oh, you know, I've never heard about this before. But to do that in a more deliberate way, uh, I try to do play something called Endgame on the podcast, which is a game we have at the end of the podcast. So I have you ask you a couple of questions about your country, where you're from, and, you know, you give me answers just to intentionally uh, disseminate information about, you know, certain cultures to listeners. So uh, are you guys ready to play the game? Sure. Yes. <laughs> And you can phone a friend if you don't, uh, you know, have the answer to this one. <laughs> but it's a pretty easy one. Uh, just talking about the Indian currency. What's the national currency of India? So you, so you can give me like a breakdown of what the major currency is and if you have coins and ha- how many coins make up one a denomination of that currency. Uh, so the uh, currency is Indian rupee. And uh, yeah. uh, so one rupee is broken down into paisa. And, uh, paisa? Uh, one, yeah. Paisa, yeah. Okay. Paisa. Uh, yeah, one rupee is equal to thousand. Uh, sorry, hundred. Uh, hundred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chirag is a money guy, man. He's sucking money. He's just rolling <laughs> in the hundreds of thousands. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the Indian rupee. Yeah, obviously uh, that's correct. And uh, maybe Manisha can answer the second one. Uh, do you happen to know what the old capital of India is uh, before Delhi? The old capital of India. Mm-hmm. No, I have no idea. Horrible in history. Yeah, I'm actually horrible in history. You want to phone a friend? (laughs) Chirag, you wrote a book on history. What's the Uh, one? Yeah, uh, Calcutta, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, uh, Delhi became the capital in 1911, I think. Yeah, and sometimes, like when I when I research on Calcutta, like it's spelled C A L C U T A some parts, and it's K O L in other. So we spelling. we have a we have a very famous uh, thing of like changing names every other day of uh, states and uh, our uh, cities and our regions. So oh. it was named uh, Calcutta. It uh, went on to name Kolkata and Mumbai. It was Bombay. Now it's Mumbai. So you, we, we keep on changing names. That, that's that, is that the same thing between Delhi and New Delhi? What's the difference? Are those two different places or is it the same place? So De- Delhi is basically a union territory and New Delhi... Uh, so we have states or union territories as major regions. And okay. within this, we have districts. 
So Delhi is a union territory, and uh, it has uh, uh, districts within itself. And New Delhi is uh, one is one district within Delhi. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, man, I look forward, you know, to visiting. I mean, flights are really cheap right now, but I don't know if I'll get a ticket just at this moment. <laughs> but maybe sometime towards the end of the year. Uh, I mean, I have a friend inviting me to Nepal in December. Uh, we'll see how that goes. I, I really want to visit India. I want to experience that whole Southeast, uh, that whole, uh, Southeast Asian corridor. I want to try street food in Delhi. Uh, what do you think is a good one? I should start. <laughs> I should start with. Like, yeah. I've never tried street food before. What was what's a good soft landing food to start with? Golgappe. Golgappe. That that's a <laughs> pani puri kind of thing. So it's it's if you love tangy and spicy thing, so yeah. that's your go to food. Yeah. You, you try that. It's like a, it's like a shell, and uh, inside uh, you put uh, uh, like. Uh, Sari water, and then you have it whole. Oh, so is that is it like chai kind of? No, chai is just tea, right? Or chai? Oh, chai. chai, no, chai. That's, yeah, that's no, that, tea. That's tea. I'm sorry. That's... We call we call it chai in Nigeria. Like northern Nigeria, we oh, have wow. we, we have chai like tea vendors uh, on the road. But yeah, I look forward to visiting. And obviously, you know, when I touch on the country, I'll obviously be reaching out to you guys. Yeah, uh, we love to host you. <laughs> I always like giving my guests, you know, a couple of minutes, uh, you know, at the end of the podcast to just uh, say whatever. Maybe if there's a question you are meaning to answer that I didn't ask, or maybe some people drop their social media handles. Some people talk about their book. Uh, some people, <laughs> you know, talk to their future selves, you know, document something that they, they want to always come back to and listen to. So whatever you guys want to do in the last couple of minutes, uh, you kind of have the floor. I, I would like to actually uh, plug in my book shamelessly. Uh, I wrote a book on uh, Indian economic history last year. Uh, it's called, uh, it's a, it has a very weird title called The Age of Awakening. Uh, I co-authored that with uh, Amit Kapoor, who's my uh, uh, boss where I work right now. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's an interesting read. Uh, you could uh, look it up if you just are interested in India. And it is a mix of political and economics, uh, economic history. And how every prime minister kind of tried to handle the economy in a different way. And is this available outside India also, yeah. or? Yeah, it's on it's on Amazon. Oh, okay. So you you can if you want you can send me the link and I can include the sure. Amazon link in the show notes so people can just click on that and if they want to buy or read reviews or something they can they can check that out. Right. Oh, and if you if you uh, want to plug in a, a good uh, book probably um, for. People wanting to know India's political history, uh, they could you could you could read uh, India after Gandhi. That's a great book for on, on India. Got it, Manisha. I I actually don't have any books like Chirag, although I am working on a. <laughs> I am uh, currently uh, like uh, trying to take up uh, a PhD course, and I am uh, right now I'm writing a book on uh, democracies, how democracies around the world are changing. So that is something that I am currently doing. And uh, I go by the Twitter handle Manisha says with a double A. Mm. So yeah, you can follow me if you need any, if you, if you want any insights on Indian politics, Indian democracy or anything. Thank you. Got it. Got it. What's the most popular communication app in India? Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat? WhatsApp, WhatsApp is the biggest. WhatsApp. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Same thing with Nigeria because it's easier for, you know, people like us right. here to communicate with people back home. Right. And it's a, it's a source of all the like fake news in the country also. And like <laughs> now, now, 
now everybody's just parents depends on whatsapp for the news we don't listen we don't read the papers anymore <laughs> got it got it yeah and that that's also giving rise to some fake news here and there but people are becoming right. more invo- informed so i have people on whatsapp groups saying you know what's the source of that information did you even read it before you post it here you know things like that but anyway Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, you guys can follow podcasts, uh, Culture Class Podcast everywhere. It's Culture Class Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, uh, on Facebook and Instagram, sorry. On Twitter, it's Culture Class Pod. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we can put you in touch with any of the guests with their permission, obviously, and let us know what you think. All right, guys, till next time. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much.